Hi, and welcome to The Year, my very first podcast, which is going to take a look at a very remarkable year in history that took place exactly 100 years ago, between November 1918 and November 1919. My name is Hugh Welshman. I'm a filmmaker. I'm best known for writing and directing, along with my wife, Dorota Kobiela, the world's first fully painted feature film, Loving Vincent, which brings the paintings of Vincent van Gogh to life to tell his dramatic life story and also about his tragic early death. I've now been working on that film for six and a half years, five years on the production of the film, and then for the past 18 months I've been working on the promotion of the film, which took me all over the world. In fact, I'm currently recording this introduction in Jerusalem, in Israel, as last night Loving Vincent opened the Annie Nation Festival. Also in the past 18 months, I curated the Loving Vincent exhibition, which opened in the Netherlands uh, last year and is shortly to have its Asia premiere at the wonderful M Contemporary Gallery in Seoul in South Korea. So if any of you listeners are living in South Korea, please do go and check out the exhibition. It opens on the 16th of November and I will be there to open it. As well as the exhibition, I have written a book on Loving Vincent called Loving Vincent The Journey and also a documentary, Loving Vincent The Impossible Dream, both of which will be available next year or even this year in a couple of countries. So if you are a Loving Vincent fan, please look out for these. So the film has pretty much completely dominated my life for more than half a decade. And during that time, it was necessary to find ways to, albeit briefly, give my brain a rest from loving Vincent. One of the ways that I escaped was through reading history books. I've always been a history fanatic. I actually partially paid my way through film school by working as a history tutor. Mainly, I read about 20th century history, and during the production of Loving Vincent, I pretty much exclusively read about World War I and its immediate aftermath. In fact, the aftermath was more fascinating uh, for me than the war itself. Growing up in Britain, the trench warfare of the Western Front loomed so large in the collective imagination that it seemed synonymous with the entire experience of World War I. While this theatre of slaughter was an important and incredibly lethal part of World War I, it was still only a part of a very big story of what happened during the war and what happened to the entire world afterwards as well. This only really started becoming clear to me when I moved to Poland. In Poland, the 11th of November is a day of celebration. This seems strange to me coming from the UK, because in the UK it was always a very sombre day, with the minute silence and the inevitable news item of members of the royal family and increasingly frail old men with lots of medals pinned to their chest laying wreaths of poppies at the centre path in London. For me, it was a day to remember the dead, whereas in Poland it is the anniversary of Poland's rebirth. I think this contrast started to open my eyes to look at World War I and its aftermath from very different points of view. Reading about this year made me realise how much of our world today is shaped by World War I and its aftermath. World War II, the communist capitalist Cold War of the latter part of the 20th century, the creation of Israel, the interminable conflicts in the Middle East, all of these were in one way or another the consequence of World War I and the ham-fisted way that the peace settlements were drawn up and enforced afterwards. I gained a much clearer understanding on why the world we live in is the way that it is and 
along the way, I came across so many amazing stories of individuals from this time, from this period. And it seemed that every news item I watched on television had its roots in 1918. And every person I spoke to about this subject seemed to have their own family story relating to World War I. At first, I wanted to write a gargantuan novel weaving together stories from across the globe that would both entertain the reader and make them incredibly wise about our world today, and also probably contain and be held together by a nail-biting thriller plot. However, in reality, I only had Sunday mornings free, and so I had to scale back my ambition. I decided that I would choose just 12 stories of just 12 individuals from this period, one for each month of the year, more or less. And I would write one short story on my Sunday mornings each month during the production of Loving Vincent. The year that you are about to hear is the result. Each story starts with a quote and is around 15 minutes long. And I'll introduce each story to say why I chose it. And at the end, I will have an afterword and tell you what comes in the following episode. With the exception of this introductory podcast and one of the later ones about Lawrence of Arabia, I won't be taking up more than half an hour of your time for each episode. For each month, there will be one story, except for this month, as I decided to write two stories that are set on the day of the armistice, the 11th of November 1918, because as well as being a day of victory, it was also a day of defeat. And while history is often written by the victors, it is often made from the resentment and rage of the defeated. To understand the year, indeed, to understand our world, it is necessary to tell both stories. The first story is called Blind Destiny. It is set in a hospital in the heart of Germany, far from the Western Front, and centres on the reactions of one particular soldier, invalided out of the war because of mustard gas poisoning. The story details his reaction to the news of Germany's surrender. In my very first GCSE history lesson, when I was 13 years old, I was taught that the origins of World War II lay in World War I, and most particularly in the Germans' resentment at the loss of the war and the humiliating terms of the Paris Peace Treaty. While this explanation was expanded upon at higher levels of education, what I had been taught in that first class pretty much remained as the core explanation of why the world descended into an even more catastrophic and barbarous war only 21 years after the supposed war to end all wars had been concluded. So I wanted to have a story that conveyed the feelings of the defeated Germans and I found the story of a blinded corporal that seemed appropriate. I have to say that I struggled with this story. Most of the stories from the year were a pleasure to research and a pleasure to write and hopefully a pleasure for you to listen to. Later in the year we will soar in the first planes, be there for the birth of new countries, be caught up in the hysteria as Europe's most beautiful monarch tries to use her celebrity and charm to flirt her way through the Paris Peace Conference and even witness a quantum leap in our understanding of the universe. But it seems a necessary evil to start at the beginning with this awkward encounter, to start our journey into the year in humiliation and rage. So here it is. Chapter 1, Blind Destiny, set 100 years ago on the 11th of November, 1918.
the 11th of November 1918, Blind Destiny. An eye for an eye will only make the whole world blind. Mahatma Gandhi. I can't see anything different from last time, declared the doctor. And I can't see anything at all, retorted the patient. When will the consultant be here? I demand to see your superior. He could see what was wrong with my eyes before. He'll know what to do now. The patient hoped that this would put the junior doctor firmly in his place. But the young man just chuckled. I have a feeling he's going to see all too clearly what's wrong with you the next time he visits. The patient had a deluge of choice words for this haughty man, but he chose to stay silent for now, eyes straight ahead. Not that it mattered what direction he had them in, as whichever direction he looked in, he couldn't see anything other than the hazy orange glow. Still, it would be a direction away from the doctor at his bedside. He wasn't going to look up to some stupid, cowardly Jew. Get some rest, Corporal, and I'll stop by tomorrow and see if you've made any progress. Come on, nurse. Made any progress, thought the Corporal. Made any progress? He'd been killing the enemies of the Reich for the past four years, while that little man had been striding around here, a thousand kilometres from the nearest front line, with his senses completely intact, with his sense of entitlement, probably imposing that sense of entitlement onto German nurses. Come on, nurse. He could see in his mind's eye the look that went along with that cheery, authoritative little command. A wink, maybe even a pat on the nurse's rear. And why not? It's not like the decorated soldier, Iron Cross First Class, with a recurrence of blindness from being gassed by our enemies could see it, now is it? The corporal knew that this was what the doctor was thinking. For while he may not currently possess the gift of sight, the corporal had a gift for seeing inside people's hearts and minds. As the doctor's footsteps receded, the corporal continued to seethe. For while he had been away fighting for the German race, men like that doctor, men, he hardly merited the word. Animals like him were having their way with Germany's blooming flowers while real men fought and died for the fatherland. And now, all men like that had betrayed all men like him made any progress. Why, he'd been the very blood running through the veins of the Kaiser's military machine, delivering vital messages between commands and from command to the men. The Corporal's War had started and ended in Ypres. He remembered his exhilaration in the first Battle of Ypres as his battalion had crawled up towards the edge of a forest being strafed by English shells that splintered trees as if they were mere straws. He held no fear. His heart thumped waiting for the order, advance. They had charged into a barrage of bullets that mowed down every one of the corporal's comrades. He was the sole survivor of the charge. He had escaped by diving into a small ditch for cover, while splatters of earth rained down on him, flaring out from around where the bullets struck, he examined himself. He had a torn sleeve under his armpit where a bullet had ripped through it, mere inches from his still beating heart but otherwise he was untouched. That is when he first felt it, felt that he was destined to survive. More than that, felt that destiny wanted him to survive. Four out of every five men in his battalion lost their lives in that first battle, but the corporal survived that day and every other day of the war since. The corporal thought back to two weeks ago when he first arrived in the sanatorium. He had screamed at the doctor, you need to cure me, 
I need to be back at the front. Do you not understand? I need to be fighting. I need to fight. He hadn't meant to lose his composure. He knew it was a break from military protocol, but his comrades needed him. He was essential. Probably the doctor would have shown him more respect if he was a higher rank. Probably he wouldn't even have been attended by the Jewish junior doctor at all. He'd have the consultant, a proper authority, who wouldn't have the temerity to doubt his word. The corporal reflected that the only reason he hadn't been offered higher command was because he was too good as a dispatch runner. Being a dispatch runner was dangerous work, and he had always volunteered for the most dangerous journeys. Time after time he would swap with his comrades for the worst missions, because he knew he wouldn't die, and they might. It had been proved countless times in the course of his four years at war he'd escaped death by the will of the world. It wasn't his time to go. There'd been the time he'd been eating lunch with his comrades, meagre rations of meat paste spread onto stale bread, but no one complained. The corporal's comrades knew better than to complain in front of him. The last time they had, he'd reminded them of how the French had eaten rats to prolong their fight against the Germans in 1870, and did they, German frontline soldiers, want to be weaker than Frenchmen? They didn't. Whinging over food has stopped. As they were munching away, the corporal heard a voice inside his head, get up and go over there. It was so clear and insistent that he obeyed it as if it was a military command. Immediately he rose to his feet and walked ten metres off down the trench with Little Fox, his trusty terrier that he'd stolen from the English. There was a flash and a blast resounded in his ears. The air around him became turgid yellow. He found himself face down on the trench floor. Scrambling to his feet, he ran back towards his comrades. Fritz was missing his legs and one of his arms, dead. Emmanuel was on the floor, face down in the mud, lifeless. Of Nicholas, there was no sign. He yelled for stretcher bearers, but he knew it was too late. They were all already dead. All dead. And now, the corporal reflected from his hospital bed, their deaths had been for nothing. At the start of his convalescence, the corporal had relied on the other patients for news of the war. However, finding someone among the freaks that he'd been deposited with actually able and willing to read to him was not easy. One man had even started crying when the corporal had thrust a newspaper in his direction. But after two weeks of willing it, his sight had returned enough that he could see, and with great effort and pain, read short articles. Two days ago he had read that the Kaiser had abdicated and the new government of traitors, Jews, profiteers and communists to a man, were offering up Germany on a plate. Unthinkable. The Kaiser's armies had defeated the Russians and were still deep inside French and Belgium territory. How could Germany surrender when he was victorious and entrenched in the lands of his enemies? The corporal's head throbbed as he read the news. He'd read too much. He could feel the blood pounding in his temples, the words dancing with each throbbing pulse. He felt like screaming. He felt powerless, futile and useless. The feeling of hot ashes resting on his eyeballs returned. The next thing he remembered was waking up and the world was gone. There was nothing before his eyes but blurry, shadowy shapes swimming in an orange haze. He'd shouted out for the nurse. She'd been there in seconds, a good fine German maiden. Nurse, my sight! It's gone! It's gone again! 
That had been two days ago. He knew because of the orange turning twice to black. He'd fought for these people, put his life on the line daily for these people, and they couldn't even come and see him for two days. And when the doctor had come, he told the corporal it was impossible. It must be psychological, a weakness of will, stress at the response to the news of Germany's imminent defeat. Because in two years of treating the effects of gas, not one other patient had regained his sight and then lost it again. Well, the corporal said, he had a patient now who had lost his sight again and what did he propose to do about it? He had simply left with his entourage of nurses. That's what he had done about it, pissed off and left the soldier behind. The corporal had never left a soldier behind. Not even in the pockmarked landscape between the lines of trenches at the height of the Battle of the Somme. The communication trenches were all blasted and the only way back to the supply trenches was to run across open ground. He and a fellow dispatcher on a Hoover had been sent to weave through the biggest bombardment in the history of mankind. It was certain death, but that didn't matter. Daily, he and his comrades looked into the eyes of such certainty and their stare never wavered. He had argued with command, but only that he be sent alone. But command reasoned that if two set out, it would be more likely that one would arrive. Of course, the corporal knew that he would get through. It was destined to be so. But he also knew that command didn't like it when he used this line of argument with them. They had set out at a run through the fiery dust storm, running blind, trying to somehow react to the litany of whistles from above, in amongst the deafening reports all around. After 500 metres of sprinting and zigzags, Uber collapsed and lay draped over the lip of a blast crater. The corporal had run back for him and then carried Huber for a full 30 minutes through the haze and flashes of the bombardment, arriving at the supply trenches with the passed out Huber over his shoulder, both miraculously unscathed. No, the corporal had never left a soldier behind and now he was one of 13 million 500,000 German soldiers being left behind by men like the doctor. Well, he would see again, he would will it, just so that he could see to men like that. He would rise again, he would get together with those other soldiers, organise them himself if he had to, and they would get together and purge Germany of the internationalist Jews and Reds, of the slackers and the cowardly recruits that had been drafted in to fight beside real soldiers towards the end of the war. Germany's military triumph had been as certain as the amen at the end of a prayer, and it was only the backhanded cowardice and greed of enemies inside the homeland that had robbed them of that certainty. The corporal had known in his heart during the fourth battle of Ypres, his last battle of the war, that there would have to be a settling of accounts. Increasingly, in amongst the good frontline soldiers were drafted new recruits, slackers, thieves and reds, bellyaching about the war. He'd confronted the biggest and loudest of them, a teenager who towered a good head over him. The teenager might have been strong in body, but he was weak in will. The corporal's comrades, the real soldiers, watched on. They knew better than to intervene as the big teenager thumped him and blooded him, for eventually he prevailed, battering the bigger man to the floor through sheer determined will. And days later, in the trenches, with the Allied planes dropping bombs on them from above, with the new Allied secret weapon tanks out in front masticating mud as they inch towards them, with gas pluming and billowing slowly all around, the corporal reflected that it was cowardly hulking teenager and his ilk that would bring down the homeland, 
not the enemies above and in front, rather the enemy inside. Distracted by this thought, he had been a fraction too slow in donning his gas mask. By the time he had it on, his eyes were stinging. An hour later, he was staggering about, his knuckles glued to his eyes as he rubbed them raw, trying to rub away the burning ashes that seemed to be stuck there. The next day he lost his sight completely. He was invalided out of the army. He had protested vigorously. He had taken out his iron cross from his inside pocket and flashed it at the medical staff. It was barely a month since he had been awarded it. The iron cross of the first order for outstanding personal bravery and general service. He held it in front of him and implored the orderlies. The army needed men like him, real soldiers. He must stay at the front and fight. They ignored his pleas and he had been sent to this hospital far, far from the fighting. A voice penetrated into his whirring thoughts. Lance Corporal, well, well, well. Professor Foster here. Dr. Wiseman tells me you've lost your sight again. Yes, sir, the corporal felt relieved. Here was the consultant. The consultant had been the one who'd restored his sight in the first place. After two weeks of being patronised by the junior doctor, he'd finally been visited by the consultant, Professor Foster. Professor Foster had patiently listened to the entire train of events and then said, You know, with the damage to your eyes, I would say, were you a normal man, that you would never see again. But I clearly see that you are not a normal man. Reading your file, I see that you spent the entire war at the front with the 13th Battalion. There's not many who've seen what you've seen. The corporal had interrupted. Dr. Wiseman said there is no damage to my eyes. Ha! That is why he is a junior, and I am the consultant. He missed the very fine scarring on your eyes, a very unusual pattern, very. Like you, I've been in this wharf all four years, and I have seen this many times, many times. Unfortunately, in most cases, almost all in fact, sight does not return. But for those with exceptional strength of will, for those with a sense of destiny, for those who are fighters, if they really focus on their eyes and practice focusing them a bit every day, they can heal themselves through force of will. Really? Really? And Corporal, I sense in you a man of will, a man with a destiny to fulfil. What do you think? You're the consultant, sir. I will be guided by you. You don't need me. You are a fighting man of destiny. You have your will. What could be more indomitable than that? I heard that you were insisting that Dr. Weisman cure you so that you could be sent back to the front. Oh, that's the spirit. My comrades need me. If I'm not there, the message is they can't get through because I... The corporal hesitated. The last thing he wanted was to be diagnosed as insane. That could mean that he would never get back to the front. So he refrained from telling the truth, that providence protected him, that destiny protected him, that he couldn't die, and stated instead, I'm the only one who gets the messages through every time. Ha! You see, like a divine messenger, that's what I'm talking about. You are a man with a mission, a man with a destiny. How can the world do without such a man? Foster's words had been like a soothing elixir. They even seemed to be lessening the chronic itching in his eyes. But then the corporal had suddenly wondered, was this man mocking him? Heal thyself, corporal. Use that fighter's spirit. 
Bring that true patriotic will to bear on your eyes. The fatherland needs you. Don't let him down. The corporal ignored his suspicions, as this man was the first person to give voice to what he, deep down, knew to be true. That he was destined to serve the fatherland. That fate had some special role for him. In the trenches, while others had smoked, drank and talked endlessly of women, he had instead read every history book, every philosophy book, every classic text, devoured the Bible from cover to cover so that he would be ready, ready to meet the destiny that awaited him. He didn't know what it was, but he knew it was there. Yes, sir, I will heal myself, sir, and I will fight again. Good lad, then we can get you back to the front where you belong. This was music to the corporal's ears. You're no malingering fraud, corporal. You're the true fighting blood. You are the stuff that legends are made of. With that, the consultant had bid him good day. In the following days, the corporal had sat in front of two candles and forced himself to see them. He sat there long hours, and sure enough, the candles slowly formed. The concentration of it was so intense that he thought that he'd start bleeding from his eyes, but after three days, he could see well enough to read. From that moment, he was agitating Dr. Weissman to send him back to the front, but the obstructive doctor had said he wanted to keep him in for observation for another week, concluding, Anyway, I'm not sure there's any point now. The corporal had picked him up on that. The point was that every German had a duty to sacrifice all for victory. The doctor had just turned his back on him and walked away. Men like him had said, What's the point? and turned their backs on the fatherland, and now it was over. Hello, Lance Corporal, can you hear me? The consultant called the corporal back to the present. I'm sorry, sir. Yes, sir. I hear you've had a setback. Yes, sir. It, it was going very well. My sight was coming back. Then I think I overtaxed my eyes by reading, reading too much. Oh, dear. That is unfortunate. I'm not sure if there's anything we can do for you. As I said before, it really is up to you. People with your condition have to find the will to heal their own sight. Don't feel bad if it's beyond you. His tone was different now, defeatist. It's not, sir. I just went too fast. I, I will see again. I, I just wasn't patient enough. Well, we all run out of patience sometime. Not me, sir. I will see. I will fulfill my destiny. Good man, mumbled the consultant rather mechanically. By the way, I was told that you were reading the terrible news about the armistice when your sight failed. Is that true? Yes, sir. Oh, how terrible. For those to be the last words that you will ever see. Well, Herr Hitler, there is nothing more I can do for you. From now on, it is all down to you. Your destiny is in your hands. Goodbye and good luck, sir. Consultant Foster strode out of the ward. Waiting on the other side of the door was Dr. Weissman. The tall, handsome consultant raised his eyebrows sky high. Well, well, you were right. He has hysterically reblinded himself. Ha! That's the first. Unique. He's utterly unique. Very interesting. Clinically, I mean. The man himself is quite the bore. Maybe that explains why he miraculously failed in four years at the front line to get a single promotion. Probably his superiors worried that he had bore his men to death. It says here in his file that they didn't think he had leadership qualities. Quite right. Who'd listen to such a man? Sir, and what of my diagnosis? 
Psychopathic? No, I don't think so. I, I think he may be a danger to society, sir. I think we should keep him in. Ha! <laughs> a danger to society? Have you been in society lately, Wiseman? Society is a danger to us all. No, he's harmless. Deluded, fanatical, but harmless. Have his release papers prepared, and as soon as he remembers how to see, kick him out. With that, Professor Foster walked off down the corridor, then stopped and turned back to Dr Wiseman. On second thoughts, kick him out now. What's the point of curing a soldier when there's no more war for him to go to? Release him into the world. Afterward, 13 years and 10 months later, on the 11th of September 1933, Professor Foster was found dead in his bathroom by his wife. Earlier that day, he'd been interviewed by the Gestapo. The gun by his side, according to his wife, was not the gun that they owned and kept in the house. The verdict of the Nazi authorities was suicide. So probably many or all of you knew long before the reveal that the blind corporal in the story was actually Adolf Hitler. Hitler is the most infamous figure of the 20th century who dragged the world into a global conflict of even greater barbarity and horror than World War I and who committed genocide against Europe's Jews and acts of unprecedented barbarity against many other nationalities and ethnic groups. Our picture of him now is of a fanatical genocidal maniac, the very embodiment of evil and extremism. I was therefore fascinated to come across stories of him ten years before his rise to power, before he'd entered into politics, before he'd even expressed any interest of entering into politics, when he was still an obscure, lowly soldier in the German army, who wasn't even German, but rather Austrian. Before the war, Hitler had been a very isolated and itinerant young man, living in poverty, sometimes homeless, sometimes living in refuges, making meagre money from time to time by selling his artwork. Signing up for the German army gave him a purpose and a home and a sense of belonging. Many millions of Germans, like Hitler, felt depressed, humiliated and angry at the loss of the war. And many millions of former soldiers had the paradoxical feelings of missing the war even while knowing that during it they had lived in atrocious conditions under the constant threat of death. The most disaffected, damaged and dangerous of these former soldiers would form the core of Hitler's followers in the years to come. And as the Great Depression took hold, he became expert at tapping into German resentment. Next week, we will have Victory But Still A Mountain To Climb, which is set on the same day the 11th of November 1918, but this time takes place in London amid the riotous celebrations of victory. In amongst the celebrating, a conversation takes place between two veterans of the great game, 
the term used to describe the espionage and diplomatic manoeuvring undertaken by the rival empires of Russia and Britain in Central Asia in the second half of the 19th century and in the first decade of the 20th century. The two individuals in the story are both larger-than-life characters from the British Empire establishment, and my aim was to write their story in the style of a boy's own news story. Boy's Own was a weekly publication for young and teenage boys, most popular in the late 19th century and first decade of the 20th century, and which is best known for its jingoistic adventure stories from around the British Empire. I am fascinated by the mindset of the British at the time. I wonder at how they could have been so fanatically patriotic and be so confident that the British way of life was unquestionably the best. On the one hand, I'm appalled by their arrogance and myopic stupidity, on the other hand, I am envious of their certainty, the scale of their ambition and their relentless pragmatism. So next week's podcast will be victory, but still a mountain to climb. I would like to thank you all for listening and I would like to thank Michael Jankowski and Noise Room for doing the sound editing and design for the year and to Atanas Valkov for his evocative music. Please do check out their websites, www noiseroom.pl and atanasvalkov.com and also please check out my Instagram account which is just my name Hugh Welshman. In celebration of the 100th anniversary of the rebirth of Poland we have made a special short painting animation. Please check it out and like it and share it. Likewise with this podcast if you have enjoyed it and have friends who you think will be interested in the year please tell them about it.